One of our favorite things at GeekWire is to try something new on our beats and write about it. We call these GeekWire adventures, and the best are the ones that we do as a team. A few years back, we all raced across Seattle at rush hour in different modes of transportation. All right. The electric skateboard won. Hey, I beat Todd. The bike did not. A couple years ago, we even spent a month in western Pennsylvania in winter for our GeekWire HQ2 project. We are in Pittsburgh, baby. Loving it. Loving it. This was not supposed to be one of those adventures, but unfortunately, it turned into one. Back in mid-February of this year, I started to feel just really yucky. It evolved from a tickle in my throat to congestion and a bad cough. Yeah. Body aches, chill, fatigue. I was short of breath. It was really the worst that I can ever remember being sick. I did not mean to share this adventure with somebody else, but unfortunately, I think I did. There you were, sniffling not far from me and coughing and just looking kind of gray. I was like... I'm not going to catch whatever he's got, am I? So, (laughs) thanks, Todd. Did I mention that this was in mid-February? Coming up, wait, was that COVID? One man's quest to solve a mysterious illness leads to a deeper understanding of viruses and testing and new insights into the future of the healthcare system. I'm GeekWire editor Todd Bishop. Welcome to the season five premiere of GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast. GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast is sponsored by Primera Blue Cross, providing comprehensive health benefits and tailored services to approximately 2 million people, from individuals to Fortune 100 companies. Learn more about how Primera is innovating in healthcare at primera.com innovation. Now, I don't know where I got my mysterious illness, but there was one very public place that I went in the days right before I started feeling sick, and it provides an ironic twist at the outset of our story. One afternoon in mid-February, I went to the Washington State Convention Center in downtown Seattle. I waited in a big crowd outside the auditorium, and then I spent an hour in a packed audience to cover this guy talking about what still seemed at the time like a very you know, distant a problem. We've always known uh, that the potential for either a uh, naturally caused or intentionally caused pandemic is one of the few things that uh, could disrupt health systems, economies, and cause uh, more than uh, 10 million excess deaths. Of course, that was Bill Gates, and he was delivering the keynote address at the American Association for the Advancement of Science annual meeting in downtown Seattle. So I filed my story, I took an Uber back to the office, and that weekend is when I started to feel just really bad. I initially convinced myself that it was just seasonal allergies, as one does, but soon it was obvious that it was a lot more than that. So being the moderately responsible sick person that I am, I went to the doctor, I got a flu test, and it came back negative for flu types A and B. So my mind started asking what exactly I had, and I asked the doctor about COVID-19. But as you probably remember, COVID tests were not really available at the time in the United States. So I was prescribed Tamiflu, bed rest, and lots of fluid. And since I did not have a fever... I was reassured by the doctor that I was not contagious. But still, I stayed home from work, and the rest of my family was fortunately out of town for the week, so I was effectively quarantined, 
with the exception of a couple of days that I did go into the office for just a few hours, just a few hours to take care of things that I felt at the time required me to be there. Of course, it was a mistake, and that's something I'm never going to live down with one of my colleagues, GeekWire reporter Kurt Schlosser. Fortunately, he's got a sense of humor. Well, I remember you coming down with something at the office. Uh, you had a rough week, maybe two weeks. I didn't see you for a week, and I didn't think anything of it. You know, February, late February, cold, flu, whatever. Um, but I did revisit it in my head after I got sick. You know, but again, I wasn't thinking COVID because it was like the first week of March. Nothing was happening yet, at least here. And uh, I got really sick. I got I missed five days of work. I was in bed with a fever for four days, lost a bunch of weight. Um, but like everybody was like, well, I'm not going to go get tested because there aren't any tests. <laughs> and uh, I didn't start to blame you until a few months after. <laughs> I still don't know if I ever had it. You know how everybody's walking around. I might have had it. I was sick in December, you know, but, um, you know, I, I've i revisited it in my head and thought, well, if that was it, then I survived. And, and uh, it was the roughest three days of my 2020. And I, I do blame you, Todd. Of course, Kurt and I are not alone in looking back to a bad illness in the first few months of 2020 and wondering in hindsight if it might have been COVID-19. Here's Christina Farr, the CNBC health tech reporter recently turned investor, moderating a panel at our GeekWire Summit in October with Dr. Trevor Bedford of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. He's a scientist who studies the spread and evolution of viruses. When did COVID get here? Because um, I am one of many people who got sick in January, who has been wondering for months, is there uh, is there any reason to suspect this this could have been COVID? And I'm I'm over on the the West Coast, um, just like you both are. So do we do we know at this point? You know when when COVID got got to the U.S. So the main data points here are one is that. There have been retrospective studies. We did this in Seattle, but other people have done this elsewhere in the country, where you take specimens where people had gone in seeking, thinking they had flu or whatever in December, January, and uh, those ended up in a freezer, and you can go back and test those bank specimens. And then in Seattle, and then again mirrored elsewhere, you basically see that none of those are, are COVID in January. That doesn't mean there wasn't anything in January, but it means kind of the average respiratory virus infection in January was was very unlikely to be COVID. We're talking just at that point, um, a few different small sparks. Uh, the other bit of uh, data that we really have here, again, is from the, the genomic side of things. Whereas if you look, we now have 160,000 infections that have had the virus genome sequence. And what we see is that all 160,000 from all over the world uh, trace back and find a common ancestor in Wuhan back in late November or early December 2019. And so we're kind of from that quite certain that it hasn't been kind of circulating widely and just we weren't testing or some something weird like that. And so the best kind of um, chronology that I have is something where you have the kind of the Wuhan outbreak getting going in the course of basically December, that becomes the Chinese outbreak or Chinese epidemic in the course of January. You start getting kind of sparks landing from that 
China, directly from China elsewhere in the course of January. Those are picked up to some degree. Most of them don't spread. We have at least one of those that arrived in late January, early February to the U.S. that really did catch on and that caused a, um, a, large, a large portion of the early infections. But that, that was eventually overwhelmed in the course of February by a number of additional sparks arriving from the European epidemic that then kind of took off and displaced these early arrivals from in late January, early February from, from China. So it wasn't one arrival. It was a number of, of arrivals, initial transmission chains that kind of petered out, even some that kind of caught on, and then like the, the conflagration basically happening in the course of uh, late February, uh, early March. My ears perked up when I heard Dr. Bedford's comment there about going back and retesting samples originally taken for flu tests to determine whether people actually had COVID-19. I checked, though, and my medical provider did not retain my sample. That may be common in research studies, but it's not realistic in the real world. But I was able to take a different type of test. And that's where things got really interesting. That's coming up next. This season of the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast is presented by Primera Blue Cross. At Primera, we talk about what we do all day. We offer access to healthcare. The card in the pocket allows people to go get access to healthcare. Dr. John Espinola is Executive Vice President of Healthcare Services for Primera Blue Cross. The challenge we have is that we know that the healthcare that they get access to doesn't work as well as it could. So we have a duty at Primera to make healthcare work better. That's our job. We give people access to healthcare, yet we give them access to something that's subpar. We have a moral and fiduciary obligation to do better. We're going to do it in partnership with those who may touch the moment of care. Providers, innovators, entrepreneurs, all of these are going to help us move in the direction we need to to make healthcare work better. We're bold enough to take the risk to try to do something that'll make a difference and learn from it and be better along the way. To find out more, visit Primera.com innovation. A couple of months after I got sick, antibody testing started to become more widely available in the Seattle region. These tests are designed to detect the presence of the antibodies produced by the body's immune system to ward off the virus that causes COVID-19. It's a way of learning after the fact whether you had it. The results came back in three emails for different stages of the test, and each one said the same thing. This sample does not contain detectable SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. And I've never been more disappointed to be told that I was not sick. <laughs> You're tested negative? I, all three, yes. Oh my gosh. Oh, so yeah. frustrating. That's Dr. Eric Vanderlip, the chief medical officer at ZoomCare, an on-demand primary care provider with clinics in the Pacific Northwest. I went to ZoomCare in February, back when I was sick, and then again in May when they started offering COVID-19 antibody testing. Testing exists on multiple fronts. We use we partner with LabCorp to do our to do both our antibody and uh, viral based testing. The antibody testing that LabCorp uses is several different platforms, um, but all of them have been FDA approved under the emergency use authorization, and all of them have very high reliability on sensitivity and specificity. In fact, we recently asked LabCorp again for their statistics on those, and they're all above 99% for detecting the presence of antibodies to COVID-19, which is a different question uh, than whether or not you actually had it, because it's possible that 
you may not have mounted a meaningful antibody response to it. And it's, yeah. it's possible, unlikely, but possible. About uh, When we use the triplicate antibody test, the IgA, IgM, and IgG, it will pick up about 92% of people who had COVID-19. Um, but 8% or 1 in 12 folks Will not, ident- will not mount an antibody response for a number of reasons, but the sensitivity goes up by including all three of those antibodies. Uh, a lot of it depends on the timing with which the test is drawn and a lot of other factors. But, um, but yeah, it's not, you know, so the tests, uh, the tests are very sensitive to being able to detect, and they're accurate in being able to detect those antibodies, and those antibodies are specific to coronavirus-19 uh, or novel coronavirus, um, but they, but that isn't to say that your body is mounted in the immune response. For more on the scientific realities of antibody testing, I spoke with Dr. Alex Greninger, an assistant professor in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at the University of Washington Medical Center. How much of your work these days is focused on issues related to COVID-19? 170%. I think if you add up the FTE. (laughs) Dr. Greninger is also assistant director at the University of Washington's Clinical Biology Lab, and he played a key role early on in getting FDA approval to process COVID-19 tests there. And he was part of a research team that evaluated an antibody test from healthcare giant Abbott, finding it highly sensitive to COVID-19 antibodies and also very specific, meaning that the test didn't confuse them with antibodies for other viruses. It's a really interesting topic. I mean, there's lots to say. The hardest thing about antibodies, they take time to like figure out what, the, what it means. People are looking to these antibody tests to understand what's going to happen to them over the next year or two years. They want to know, am I going to get the virus nine months from now? And that just takes nine months. Like, I mean, it just takes time to like, you know, figure that out. Antibody wanes over time. We've seen decreases. The question really is, is what's the critical threshold that you need to have protection? And we don't totally know that. That's another thing that's really maddening about this, right? I mean, one of the major X factors when you're talking about any virus, especially this virus, it's a respiratory virus. We have no idea what the dose is that people get exposed to. And we know that there's radically different levels of antibodies in people, whether they were sort of asymptomatic, you know, symptomatic, stayed outpatient, symptomatic, went to the hospital, symptomatic, went to the ICU. Those usually are correlated with very different antigenic loads that they got, which are then reflected in the amount of antibody present. If somebody gets an antibody test and it comes back negative, does that mean definitively that they did not have COVID? No, it doesn't. It's a good piece of data. It's fantastic. I mean, it's a great piece of data. I mean, what other piece of data? I want to know other things, you know, uh, when they think that they had it, uh, if they had symptoms, people in January and February. I mean, the honest truth in January and February is there's a lot of RSV and flu. We had a big influenza B season this year. We had uh, RSV, you know, uh, right off, right off, you know, with it, which is, you know, really as common as flu. RSV stands for the respiratory syncytial virus, a common virus that infects the lungs and breathing passages. And so the those those come on those time periods. So it's and and, and you know other than like this like loss of of, of smell, uh, they're pretty similar-ish uh, symptoms. Most likely they were not infected. However, one of the things that's, that's, that's sort of frustrating is that um, there aren't a lot. A lot of the tests they are reported qualitatively, so you come back positive, negative. There's a quantitative value that comes off the instrument. There's a lot of like wiggle room in between those. The qualitative cutoff. Well, my test results came back simply negative for antibodies, as if it were a binary decision, negative or positive, 
Dr. Greninger is saying here that antibody testing actually produces a number, and whether or not it qualifies as negative or positive actually depends on whether it falls above or below a certain cutoff. So what you're saying is it's not yes or no, it's it's maybe. There's a maybe in there. There's definitely. I mean, we, we actually, in the first paper we put out on antibody testing, we actually we proposed an indeterminate range. And we can even plot all of our antibody testing. An ideal test, right? You know, you have this perfect population of negatives and perfect populations of positives, and you can park a truck between them in terms of the values you're getting, right? There's no overlap. You look at the cutoff values on this test, it is just one long, just like, you know, <laughs> continuum. There's not like necessarily like a perfect spot. You could choose different places. Now, when they look at the Abbott test, they usually set a signal, um, a signal to cutoff ratio of 1.0 on this test for figuring it out. Uh, and the one, the signal to cutoff ratio on this is a, is a 1.4. It's a little bit higher. And you could change the signal to cutoff ratio and figure what's, what's going to be a positive and negative. But I think honestly, if you're looking at like, what's the risk of a false positive versus a false negative, they were far worried about false positives because you think people would actually change their behavior and even if they weren't you know, immune, they would go out and act like it, maybe not mask, that sort of thing. You can change where the threshold is based on values of what, what does it mean? Are you a screening test? Then if you're a screening test, then you move the cutoff way low because you know that there's going to be additional testing and you want to catch everybody who potentially is positive, right? If you're a diagnostic test or confirmatory test, then you might need more specificity. And so there's you know, different algorithms depend on how hard it is to get the test, how hard it is to run another one, how many other tests there are. All that gets baked into sort of, you know, um, how we use these tests. That's why I have a job. <laughs> so my story is I got sick back in February. I went in to the doctor at the time, tested for flu, negative at the time on A and B. Okay. It was brutal. It was the worst I've ever been sick. Was there RSV on that panel? I don't know. Okay. I double checked afterward and RSV was not among the things I was tested for. RSV is pretty brutal. It's very brutal. Um, it's a it's a bad virus. It's a bad hombre, uh, or madre, or whoever. You know, it's um, it, it basically it's it's seasonality overlaps with flu and the other common coronaviruses. So, you know, the coronavirus. Did you get a test for coronavirus at the time or not? Really, it wasn't. No, because wasn't it wasn't available. When in February, February are you sick? What part? Uh, February seventeenth. Okay. Yeah, that's that's you know that's getting later in the month. I mean, there have been a few cases that have been found at that time. Uh, I do think, you know, when you think about this virus and you think about sort of, you know, East Pacific Northwest or really anywhere, especially before there was widespread testing and awareness of this, you, you sort of would expect sort of, you know, classic uh, exponential growth. Um, and so the later every week you get later into February, uh, the chance, I would say, goes up significantly. People who are saying, ah, I had the first week of February or the last week of January, you're kind of like, ah, all right, maybe, but like, come on. But, you know, as you get towards the end of it, you can, and you see, and that's exactly what we saw when we were sort of testing for cases and then people test. I mean, all of a sudden there was a crush of cases uh, the last week of February, the very end of February, first week of March. It, not to completely base this around my own experience, yeah, but <laughs> after I went in, I got the negative for A and B. I didn't have a fever. The doctor said, oh, you don't have a fever, so you're not contagious. So I mostly was at home, but there were a couple days when I went into work, I had stuff going on. You know, in hindsight, I look back on that and I think, was I ignorant about COVID or was I ignorant about viruses? And did I act irresponsibly by going into work? Because one of my colleagues did get sick after that. Oh, yeah. No, it sucks. Um, I think there's going to be, you know, again, like you've never tested uh, for this much as for a virus. And so that has helped us, you know, find these asymptomatic transmissions um, and such a large percentage of being asymptomatic. Intuitively, I mean, every virus brings with it a way of telling the innate immune system to go away, right? It buys itself a couple of days 
of or a day or two of, 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 of sort of being able to, to get up to viral loads fast. And then fun functionally symptoms are your immune system responding. Right. And so it makes sense what we've seen from COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 here that it has that high viral load uh, right at the, the right when your symptoms start, because that's when it's, your body's responding to it. It kind of you know, intuitively sort of makes sense. And it'd be interesting to see more and more for other viruses. If we do this much testing, you know, how often what percentage certainly for COVID-19, it's been very uh, it's been a high percentage you know, of, of cases that are you know, asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic and transmission at that time. Um, but I wouldn't call it irresponsible. I mean, it just one of the biggest things that's going to come away with is masking, right? Like you're, we're all at risk. It helps you. It helps the other person. You know, we know when the flu season is. It's not that long all to all put together, right? We haven't entered it right now, I'd say. And so, you know, you can mask during the winter months, and and you really probably suppress a lot of transmission, even of the normal flu. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I, for one, will forevermore think twice about having so much as the sniffles around other people without wearing a mask. But beyond changes in human behavior, the UW's Dr. Greninger predicts the pandemic will bring about a seismic shift in testing. Well, I have a little bit of soapbox here. We've always had, you know, this issue in laboratory medicine and diagnostics that we're not going to test for things we can't do anything about. Influenza, the rapid diagnostics have really only become available in the last, I'd say, like 10 years and so we see we see a lot more rapid flu testing, um, and a lot of that's driven by the fact that you know we worry about flu and it's a bad virus, but also because we can do something about it, and we have not been doing that for the para influenza viruses or the metanuma viruses, even the RSV, you know, to some degree, the other coronaviruses, there's all sorts of respiratory, the rhinoviruses, the enterovirus. We don't do it for most of those guys. That's the extended respiratory panel, and it's only run on immunocompromised individuals. Even though the burden of transmission is out there in the community, it's in you know adults and kids and everyone. And so you know we've seen now with SARS-CoV-2, like, if, if we put our minds to it, and we put some focus on it, you know, and we got we actually got a little lucky because remdesivir had like 10 years of development pre-baked into it, so we could start at a phase three trial. Um, that's a really important story that I think wish more people knew about that we basically, you know, that drug was developed, you know, was taken off the shelf to work against other coronaviruses, uh, worked in a dish, worked in, you know, in mantle models, and then they tried it against Ebola. So it got its phase one, phase two data, safety data for Ebola. So we got to start at a phase three trial starting in February. But now we have monoclonals. We have this ability to generate monoclonals very fast. We have uh, antiviral small molecules. We have more coming for the respiratory viruses, you know, we're going to see more aggressive testing for these viruses now that you can do something about it. And that's that's the biggest story in respiratory virus diagnostics before COVID-19 was um, basically the decrease in reimbursement for testing for all the things. We actually were sort of actually told not to test for all the things. Uh, I have a whole bunch of instruments, even though they'd like to test for 25 things, uh, are specifically set up to test for three to five targets because that's the Medicare reimbursement. You know, the insurers were fighting back against the, you know, testing of 12 to 25 targets, you know, even though that made sense public health in a way, potentially, or, you know, also drove interest and people knew that they had a certain virus and would go, you know, get interested in it. Um, but that's not enough for insurance reimbursement. And so, you know, you had these platforms that got reorganized, sometimes even to have the number of channels that fit the reimbursement scheme. And so it's really important to like understand that. And, you know, as we get more treatments, that sort of logic will go out the window. And so it's just, you know, we're really in a, in a golden era of respiratory virus treatments 
uh, over the next decade. And I think it's going to follow in the diagnostic space as well. So there really is a, a, a renaissance in, in the testing for these. And it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. And that goes with antibody testing too. For the record, after talking with Dr. Greninger, I would bet that I had RSV, not COVID-19. But that's just a hunch. Despite my best efforts, I actually went to multiple doctors when I was sick, and I've been trying for literally months now to figure out what I had. I still don't know for sure. So I couldn't help but ask this question to ZoomCare Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Eric Vanderlip. What does that say about the state of the healthcare system that like somebody like me was able to go through this system trying to do my best, and yet, to me, it feels like the system failed me to some extent? Yeah. Is, is that too extreme? Nope. Uh, I, think, I think that we've bungled this whole approach to COVID personally. Dr. Vanderlip is talking here about the healthcare system writ large. Zoom doesn't live by itself on an island within the healthcare environment. We are um, part and parcel of the larger ecosystem of healthcare delivery system in the United States. And at that point in time, early on in this outbreak, um, you know, one of the learnings that we had in Zoom from a macro perspective was that if we get too far ahead of the standard of care for what everybody else is doing, or conversely, too far behind, it's not good. Um, we are best when we're right on the bleeding edge of things and adopting things early, but not too early. That's a very difficult wave to ride in the middle of this whole tsunami of coronavirus. <laughs> um, and an example of that is testing. And at the very beginning, there were, you know, the CDC had offered a way to identify coronavirus via this PCR-based testing, but LabCorp was not testing anybody. Nobody else was testing. It's basically only public health agencies that were allowed to test from the CDC that had been authorized to test and identify the coronavirus via PCR, which is a way of taking the viral RNA, converting it back to DNA, and looking for three or four different spots on that DNA that's specific to coronavirus. And all that stuff was kind of encompassed within the knowledge of the CDC and then distributed to the public health departments. And then the public health departments only had the capacity to do 30 or 40 tests a day at most. And so they were prioritizing that testing based off of certain case findings, persons who had traveled to China and had a fever and blah, blah, blah. And Zoom was not at liberty and could not have the physical ability to offer testing beyond those guidelines. And that's an example of where, while we would have liked to be able to do testing for everybody who wanted it potentially, and we're seeing other countries that we're doing wide-scale adoption of testing for everybody in the population, we couldn't because, A, we didn't have the supplies, we didn't have access to the actual test, um, we didn't have swabs, test kit, viral transport media, um, and then on top of that, we didn't have the clearance from public health authorities to do it. So if we, even if we'd have gone rogue and done it, we would have gotten the ire of the rest of the medical community um, and uh, been sanctioned by the FDA. So that was the backdrop for what was happening when I went in, was sick, and was asking for a COVID-19 test. There was really no chance that I was going to get one because of what was happening in the system. But behind the scenes through all of this, Dr. Vanderlip says that ZoomCare has actually been trying to get creative to come up with solutions 
for these systemic problems. At one point, it led a pilot program trying to validate salivary samples as an alternative means to detecting coronavirus. And we recruited a bunch of people from Seattle, partnered with a lab in Vancouver, Washington, that would look at saliva samples. Saliva is different because we could use different processing techniques to identify it. And at that time, access to nasopharyngeal swabs, which are these long, thin swabs that go way back in somebody's throat, um, were very, very extremely limited and hard to come by. And the viral transport media were very limited. And so we were trying to think outside the box of an alternative way we could find and identify coronavirus. And so we did this whole pilot study trying to identify coronavirus in saliva. And truth be told, it just didn't work out in the initial phase of it. Um, We couldn't get the right data um, and it wasn't test characteristics weren't good enough compared to the other more traditional methods of sampling. But Zoom has been trying to push the envelope. We've been trying to do innovative things since this thing first came out. But we are intrinsically dependent on supply chain things that are way out of our control. Um, public health authority guidance and the threat of sanctions from the FDA and others that are very real. There were certain companies that released home-based testing, self-sampling early on, NERCs, Everlywell. Both went with a home-based testing protocol. It was not approved by the FDA, and they got immediate cease and desist orders from the FDA and threats of congressional action against their um, use of home-based testing. And so, That's a challenge that we run into. We'd like to do what's right, what we think is scientifically valid, but our government, which really probably should have been taking the lead in advancing testing and advancing access to the population, didn't step up. And so they left it to private industry to try and innovate. We can't, but we're we're hamstrung by supply chain shortages and other things. Um, And, you know, we, we can't do testing without gowns, face masks. Uh, eye protection, gloves, and all those resources were being dedicated to hospitals and emergency rooms, as they should be. But, you know, if you want private industry to step up and do something innovative, you've got to open up the ability for them to test that stuff. You've got to approve their ability to do it. And and even at that, they're still dependent on, on supply, chain, supply chain things. And there's some things that just, I, I personally kind of think the federal government has the authority, the capacity, and the bandwidth to do something at much more mass scale than a small private industry. While I did not end up solving the mystery of my illness, I did make a point of closing the loop and apologizing to the person I accidentally shared this adventure with. How pissed are you at me? How much of a grudge are you holding? You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't been in the office since. So that tells you anything. Um, <laughs> actually, I've been in once, and you know what? I'm I'm kind of old school, so I have a desk calendar on my on my desk, um, and I'm one of those weirdos who crosses off the days as they go by. And the last crossed off day was March third. That was the last time I was in there, and I remember I got sick the week of my son's birthday. He turned 13, so I guess you kind of ruined that, so you can apologize to him as well. Okay. I'll do that individually (laughs) next time I see him. (laughs) Uh, I'm glad you're feeling better. All right. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better, too, and and if you can find it in your heart someday to forgive me, I I hope you can. (laughs) Yeah, see you in 2022. Thanks to my colleague, GeekWire reporter Kurt Slosser, and to our guest experts this week, Dr. Alex Greninger of University of Washington Medicine and Dr. Eric Vanderlip, the Chief Medical Officer at ZoomCare. 
And thank you for listening to the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast app, or tell a friend or a colleague about the show. See more episodes at geekwire.com slash health tech and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Thanks to our sponsor of Health Tech Season 5, Primera Blue Cross. You can find out more about their work at primera.com slash innovation. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com. Sign up for our podcast newsletter to hear all of our shows. I'm GeekWire editor Todd Bishop. We'll be back soon with another episode of the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast.